From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. Mark, I'm still trying to cope with the news about the Arclight. For those that don't know, the Arclight is a chain of movie theaters that are really sort of like the be-all, end-all of the movie-going experience here in L.A., particularly the location in Hollywood. It's a place where you can eat and drink and have a celebrity sighting and have the best date and worst dates ever. And it's coming to an end in a way. And it just feels so bittersweet because there's really no way to say goodbye. Like I was trying to think of my last moment there. Um, Mark, how were you processing the news? Uh, I mean, I was surprised. I still don't entirely understand the sort of the timing of when the announcement came out, but then also, you know, the nature of our work, I was sort of hit with an assignment. And so there was no time for like me to have emotions about it. But then it's funny, the piece that I did along with our colleague Jen Yamato. Which was so great. I just like hearing the stories people have or like the connection to it. Yeah. So we reached out, you know, to a bunch of filmmakers and people that we, you know, thought would have some connection to the theaters to just share their sort of like memories and reflections. And it was funny how like I was sort of able to process my feelings through like all of their feelings in a way. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite Arclight moment? I mean, you've done dozens of the Q&As after movies there. I've done a few, but not to the level that you have. The best one for me is when I did a Q&A for the movie The Beach Bum starring Matthew McConaughey. And I, it was going to be a Q&A in the Dome. Uh, Matthew McConaughey was there. The filmmaker Harmony Corinne was there. And Jonah Hill, who co-stars in the movie, literally was driving by the theater, saw the name on the marquee. It was like, hey, I'll bet they're doing a Q&A. And he, and you'll appreciate this, found a spot right in front of the Cinerama Dome, which is unheard of. It's coveted. <laughs> he just showed up. And it was super fun to have like a surprise guest, you know? And then also I did a Q&A once for a movie called The Sisters Brothers that starred John C. Riley, And John C. Riley was there. The filmmaker Jacques Odiard was there. And the costume designer for the movie, Milena Cananero, who did Marie Antoinette. She did Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. Like, she is like a grand dame of costumers. She was just there to see the movie in the audience. And someone had a costume question. And John C. Riley ran down the aisle of the dome with a microphone so, like, she could answer the question. And it was just there was something just so adorable and, like, pitching in about watching John C. Riley like, sprint down the aisle. That was always, something I'll always remember. I love that. My favorite memory is just, like, eating milk duds in one of the green rooms with Issa Rae. I was doing a Q&A with her. And I'm just, we were looking at all the, like, the people that have left their signatures on the wall and sort of inspecting everything. So... It'll be interesting to see like what the future holds for it, if anyone's going to save it or what's going to happen there. I'm sure it's not the end end, but it's still a gut punch for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us who you're talking to this week. It's a filmmaker whose film I wish I could have seen at the Arclight. Tell us who you're talking to. Well, I, it's quite appropriate for the, our last episode before the Academy Awards. We have Emerald Fennell, who wrote, directed, and produced Promising Young Woman. The film was nominated for five Oscars, and it's astonishing considering this is, you know, Emerald's feature film debut. Like, she's made some short films, she's worked extensively in television, but this is the first time she's, like, 
made a feature film of her own. Carrie Mulligan stars as a, a young woman who dropped out of medical school after her best friend was raped. And then, you know, it's unclear in the movie, but likely committed suicide. And she sort of goes on this kind of, you know, revenge journey of her own. And the the movie really has just sort of like captured the moment in a in a lot of ways. I suppose when I think about this film, really, it's about how I suppose women in particular, but people in general can hide their rage and their fury and their grief. And so many of us have to do that or know to do it, and particularly women, by diverting attention. And the easiest way to do that is to brush your hair and put on a, you know, coat of lipstick or whatever it is. And, you know, Yvonne, it's it's so funny. This I think you'll appreciate this. So the interview that I did with Emerald for the podcast is actually the fifth time I've spoken to her for the movie. I mean, going back to I spoke to her before it premiered at Sundance. I spoke to her at Sundance, then when the movie came out kind of later in the year, then the day of the Oscar nominations, and again for the podcast. And it's funny, I genuinely don't think I asked her the same question twice. Like, there's sort of enough to talk about with this film. You can sort of continue talking about it. And also it was interesting for me to, like, hear her thoughts on the movie, how they've kind of evolved over time. She's a woman of many talents. I mean, that's all women, frankly. We all have many talents. But, like, she EP'd the second season of Killing Eve, and she played Camilla Parker Bowles in The Crown. I mean, I just want to have dinner with Emerald one night. She's writing the book for a stage musical of Cinderella with Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, come on. We have to step up our game. And I understand you talk about glittering Trojan unicorns, Mark. So, like, I really cannot wait to hear what that's all about. And it's coming up after this short break. The New York Times calls The Boys more relevant than ever. And CNN dubs it one of TV's most daring shows. Coming April 15th, it's The Boys, the official podcast. I'm your host, Tim Cash. Join me for exclusive behind-the-scenes interviews with the creative minds behind this groundbreaking TV series. Hear from show creator Eric Kripke and executive producers Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg on how they brought the beloved comic series to the screen. And kick back with the cast and crew to find out what went into making some of your favorite scenes. These are the never-before-heard stories behind The Boys. From high-speed boat chases to Lucy the Whale to Easter eggs hidden in plain sight, we're dishing out all of the gory details. Don't miss The Boys, the official podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. So listen now wherever you get your podcasts. And check out seasons one and two of The Boys on Prime Video. Mark's conversation with Emerald Fennell about Promising Young Woman is up next. But first, let's hear from our columnist, Glenn Whip, who's got his regular awards minute for us. Well, the Oscars are here, finally. It's like the never-ending road, the never-ending award season is finally over on Sunday. And what am I looking for from this ceremony? I am looking, hoping to be entertained because, I mean, the ratings are going to be low. We know that. People didn't see these films in theaters. People aren't watching linear television as much. But 
that's not going to matter as much to me as long as Steven Soderbergh and the other producers put on a good show. The Oscars this year need to remind people that moviegoing matters. That's job one. And they need to tell people that sometime soon they need to roll off their couches and they need to get in their cars and head to the local multiplex. I mean, right now, the movie going is just besieged on multiple fronts. Here in L.A., we recently learned that our beloved movie going cathedrals, the Arclight Theaters, will not be reopening. And that was just like this gut punch. And so when I'm watching the Oscars on Sunday, what I really hope they do is remind people about the magic of movie going because it is magical and it does matter. Film matters. And the Oscars need to be just like this PSA for film. I mean, we've lived through a version of Soderbergh's movie Contagion for the past year, and we need to find a way forward now. And I'm hoping the Oscars will be entertaining, and I hope somehow they can point people in that right direction and point people back to movie theaters because that is vital right now. And that's it. I love that Glenn is so over it. He doesn't even have predictions for the ceremony, Mark. He's just like, it's finally here. Let's get to it. But I was reading, you know, uh, our former colleague, Rebecca Keegan, did an interview with the Oscars producers And I think Soderbergh described it as a fucking Bronco. So I think that sort of sums it up what our experience will be like. How are you feeling as we get closer? I mean, I am excited about the actual show just because there's going to be such a sort of air of mystery about it. And like, you know, you know, the location's different and so much is going to be different that 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 in some ways I'm as excited about what the show is going to be as I am about what some of the winners are going to be. Well, it's also going to be like, an Oscar ceremony like no other. It's going to be memorable for that alone. And I want to experience it. So I remember what it was like. So I'm looking forward to it. That's just me. Yeah. Well, Mark, let's get to your conversation with Emerald. Here it is. Emerald, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And now the life of the film Promising Young Woman from its premiere at Sundance so long ago in January in 2020 There was a planned release that was then thwarted by the pandemic. Then it did come out. Then it goes on to get five Oscar nominations. The life of this movie, what what do you make of it? I mean, I I can't imagine this is all in any way what you expected when you were making the movie. Yeah, I think you'd have to be a sort of megalomaniacal lunatic to expect an independent movie like this one to come as far as it's come and to be nominated for BAFTAs and Oscars and and Golden Globes, it sort of seems completely magical somehow and impossible. But no, I mean, the answer is absolutely not. It's just not something any of us expected. We're so delighted. But I think certainly I made the film because it was something I wanted to talk about, I guess. It was something that that I had been thinking about so much and I didn't know how to, you know, there are some things that are very hard to talk about. And so sometimes you have to make something, you know, to sort of interrogate you know, your own feelings about it. And I think, obviously, at the moment, with everything that's going on in the world, I think a lot of people, and specifically a lot of women, have also been thinking the same things. 
Yeah, so it's been it's been amazing. It's been extraordinary. There's been so much written about it. There's been so much conversation around it. You've been talking about it for well over a year now. Have your thoughts or feelings about the movie changed or evolved like over that time? Are you thinking about it any differently now than when, say, you were at Sundance? God, that's interesting. I, I don't think so. I mean, I, th- I suppose your relationship with, the, with, the, with anything changes after you s- talked about it a lot. If I haven't learned anything about the film, perhaps, I definitely learned so much about, I don't know, the themes and ideas that the film discusses. I think one of the things that's been so amazing about talking to people is how candid people have been on all sides of the argument about their responses. And that's been so, it's been both incredibly moving and sometimes difficult, you know, just to, I suppose I made the film because I, because I certainly felt in my life how common this stuff was. But I think in discussing the film with people, I've learned how true that is and how it is incredibly harrowing to, to realise how women and girls have been treated for so long. And I've, I've heard you say that you didn't intend for the movie to be sort of capital P provocative when you were making it. Have you been surprised at all by the response? I mean, there have been, for example, essays of people writing that they didn't care for the movie and they're just trying to figure out why. There's something, even for people who don't like it, they can't dismiss it. That there's something about it that really hooks into people. And have you been surprised by by that, that the response on either side has been as strong as it has? I don't know, because you can't anticipate, you really can't anticipate any response from anyone. And it's also not your job, I think, the thing that is important and was really important for me like going into this is it's not your job as a director or a writer to make any moral judgments. You're not making a documentary. I think particularly female filmmakers, there's a lot of pressure and an obligation to be cathartic and to be empowering always when telling women's stories. And I hope that this story is cathartic and empowering in its own way. But at the same time, I really wanted to, to write something that felt very truthful to me. There's nothing in this film that is extraordinary. It's unfortunately, you know, there are things perhaps that are, you know, heightened, but in terms of the stuff that we're discussing in the film, it's nothing that has not been discussed behind closed doors between women of all ages for a long, long time. And I think because of because of the nature of the film, because of the subject matter it touches on, everyone has a very specific and personal relationship to that material. And you can't ever hope to make something that could encompass everyone's different experiences. And in fact, it would be wrong to try because I think you would end up not really being able to make anything meaningful to anyone. So all I could do was tell this one woman's story about a very specific thing that I suppose I have seen in my life. And and it's absolutely understandable that some people, for, for I mean, and opposite sides as well, of course, some people think it's too feminist and it's... Sort of, you know, quote unquote, woke and all that, and some people feel it doesn't go far enough. It's really interesting. It seems that people either the reaction has been very um, varied, but that's that's what you you hope to provocative is, is sort of an awful word because it, to me it sort of means you've you're kind of deliberately going out to kind of I don't know pull people's pants down or whatever it is. It's kind of pranking almost. Being a provocateur is. I think reasonably easy, probably, to be shocking. I wasn't trying to be shocking. I was trying to be honest. And I think that there are lots of people who find the honesty of this film confronting. 
And then there are those who, for lots of reasons, you know, don't want to, you know, watch this kind of material because it's too difficult. And for to them, of course, of course not. You know, absolutely. People um, can feel whatever they want about it. It's quite freeing that. <laughs> and then there are a lot of sort of ambiguities in the story. And I guess I haven't said this, but please, spoilers away. Don't be concerned about that as we're having this conversation. But, that you know, I'm thinking specifically there's a moment where... There's like a thug that Carrie Mulligan's character, Cassandra, has seemingly hired to do something to the character played by Alfred Molina, and she calls it off, and people don't really know what that guy was going to do, or there are the little notations that she makes in a notebook that it's not clear what the color codings mean and what, what exactly she's been doing to people. For you, having those little uncertainties in the in the movie, what purpose did they serve? Did they sort Were they there to sort of like spur conversation and to get people sort of thinking and engaged? Uh, a few reasons. The first most practical reason is from a storytelling point of view, this is a subversion of, of a very specific trope, which is the revenge movie. And so there are certain elements of those movies that, you know, we really wanted to both embrace and kind of undermine. And so the thriller element, I suppose, of the film is important. It's important that we don't know and, and that the information in this film is very carefully portioned out I suppose and we learn it it unravels slowly but you know I think things need to be ambiguous because so much of this film is about ambiguity is about that space between he said she said let's say for example how some people can't stomach what Cassie does at all and some people want her to cut their balls off what we are kind of willing to cope with, deal with, encourage is very different. But certainly for me, without wanting to explain the film too much or tell people what to think, this film is very much about this is a woman's journey and it is not a traditional violent story in the way that we expect these stories to be. You know, is he a heavy? Is he a heavy? He's bald. He's has an accent. He seems perhaps a little unusual, but he's a small man. He's, you know, he's wearing a leather jacket, but is he a heavy? I would argue possibly not, looking at what she's done before. But, you know, and and as for the book, it's a sort of similar situation. I'll never, like, outline what it was. These are notations for herself. These are memory aids for herself. I think this film very clearly says that women very rarely resort to violence because when they do, they don't win. And then I've heard you say as well that the movie purposely scene to scene or sometimes even moment to moment, sometimes it's a thriller, sometimes it's a horror movie, it's a buddy movie, it's a rom-com. Was it hard to balance all those elements out? And was that more an aspect of writing or is that something that also came through like in how you were directing Carrie's performance or even editing the, the scenes? I think, oh, certainly all of those things combined, really. I think the thing that was important early on, as well as even just from a casting point of view, to cast Carrie, who is such a beautifully, brilliantly, extraordinarily subtle and grounded and real performer, to even call it performing feels sort of wrong because it never, ever feels like that with her. But it was really important that we believed Cassie, that no matter how heightened some of the elements felt, no matter how arch some of the sort of visual metaphors were that we believed her and we understood even if we didn't like her some of the time we understood her and so for all of the actors in spite of the fact that lots of them are very adept at comedy 
they were never there to play the humour in that everyone was playing it straight. It's really important that we kept the kind of emotional honesty of it. The rest of it is is sort of a trick, really. I suppose like one of Cassie's trick, it's kind of an, an engine or a, I mean, a Trojan horse sounds sort of much stealthier than I think it is. It's a sort of like sparkling Trojan unicorn, but it's in order to take us to Cassie. All of it is just to take us to Cassie, really. And when you say take us to Cassie, what do you mean? Because she in some ways remains difficult to understand. I mean, one of the things I find so powerful about Carrie's performance is that even within a scene, I'm thinking specifically of the scene with Connie Britton when she's gone to see the Dean, she goes from charming to somewhat damaged to genuinely terrifying all within the space of this single scene. So when you say kind of leading us to Cassie, what does that mean to you? Well, I think that the film is there to sort of mirror and support and contextualize her performance and her emotional journey. Like a good example is the fact that when she's in a sort of safer space, she's in sort of pastels and she's soft and everything is lit sort of in a very kind of beautiful feminine way. And the film itself, the way that we shot it is incredibly uh, contained and static and kind of necessarily formal in terms of its composition. But, you know, the moments we use Steadicam are whenever Cassie loses control. And so whether that's falling in love with Ryan, they're on a date, the camera loosens up, but she loosens up. And then Tauntons again when she retreats. Or after she sees the videotape, you know, and she's sort of in the garden trying to come to terms with what she's seen, then you feel kind of film loosen up around her spiral kind of out of control. So, so what I mean to say is that all of the decisions when it comes to genre, when it comes to the look, when it comes to costume are there to support her what's going on in her head really because the film in general I think is it is so much her film it is a film about why we don't take women's stories seriously and I'd argue that that's partly because we don't take Britney Spears or manicure seriously it's sort of those things are entwined so it was important that they kind of shared the world I suppose tell me more about that the the style of the movie is so specific. It does create a very specific world. And it's one in which you can have a pastel manicure and still be doing sort of dangerous and unsettling things. And just tell me more about what that meant to you and how you feel that there are things that are considered feminine or girly that are then somehow means they're not taken as seriously. And you kind of wanted to, as you were saying, flip that on its head. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I would just ask the question back at the audience or you in this conversation, what is it about pastel manicure that we as a society think is not serious? Why do we think that that would be indicative of somebody who's, yeah, not to be taken seriously, who couldn't do something monstrous? I suppose when I think about this film, really, it's about how I suppose women in particular, but people in general can hide their rage and their fury and their grief And so many of us have to do that or know to do it, and particularly women, by diverting attention. And the easiest way to do that is to brush your hair and put on a, you know, coat of lipstick or whatever it is. And and it's an interesting thing that there was a decision, an arbitrary decision about what was important and how we discussed important things and how we treated them and how we showed them that didn't really seem to ring true with my life. But it's also really fun. Just from a kind of filmmaking perspective, it's really fun because what this film is sort of an attempt to do is to 
mimic the journey that I think a lot of women are very familiar with. And I think the men in this film then become familiar with the the male characters, which is you think you're safe and you're not. Something seems normal and innocuous and sweet and it's not. You know, that's what the film is about. And it's also kind of addressing the things about ourselves where we, as a sort of culture, I suppose, have failed calling this kind of stuff out. The New York Times calls The Boys more relevant than ever, and CNN dubs it one of TV's most daring shows. Coming April 15th, it's The Boys, the official podcast. I'm your host, Tim Cash. Join me for exclusive behind-the-scenes interviews with the creative minds behind this groundbreaking TV series. Hear from show creator Eric Kripke and executive producers Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg on how they brought the beloved comic series to the screen. And kick back with the cast and crew to find out what went into making some of your favorite scenes. These are the never-before-heard stories behind The Boys. From high-speed boat chases to Lucy the Whale to Easter eggs hidden in plain sight, we're dishing out all of the gory details. Don't miss The Boys, the official podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. So listen now wherever you get your podcasts. And check out seasons one and two of The Boys on Prime Video. I have to ask, knowing that you're a fan of Britney Spears, has it been exciting to you that during the lifespan of Promising Young Woman, as we're having conversations like this one, that Britney has been getting like a fresh moment and in some ways a fresh appraisal, you know, reappraisal herself, in part because of the documentary that came out about her? And is it meaningful and exciting to you to see Britney kind of getting that kind of reappraisal? You know, as a huge fan of hers for many years, I'm very glad that people are reconsidering their own behavior. I think it's honestly, it's less about her than it is about the way we treat famous women and what we're capable of, I suppose, putting up with. There are decisions that are made on behalf of women. There are things that affect women's lives. But if they ever happen to men, if they ever happen to a man in the public eye, they would be a complete aberration. It would be impossible. We're just used to women, I think, being infantilized and being mocked. And there's this sort of very creepy paternalistic idea of, I know best. I know best. I think a lot of women will know that. And and men too, of course, you know, but a lot of people will know the I know best argument. But you very rarely hear it about male pop stars who spend their money lavishly on all sorts of extraordinary, wonderful, strange, possibly terrible things. You know, it would only be a woman that we would feel it needs to be contained and looked after. It's completely Victorian. But as to whether I'm excited, I suppose not. I'm just incredibly distressed that it's still even something that is possible. It takes us so long and so much evidence to take these things seriously. It was so evident at the time that what was happening was cruel, you know? And so, yes, of course, I think it will always be a good thing when these things are kind of re-examined, but it's distressing how how far things have to go until people start to look at them properly. 
And now you were, along with Chloe Zhao, the director of Nomadland, the sort of sixth and seventh women nominated for the Oscar for Best Director. But as my colleague Mary McNamara pointed out, you are, as far as anyone knows, the first woman nominated for Best Director who directed her movie while pregnant. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. So if it's not too naive a question, at what is often thought of as this sort of blissful and joyful time in a person's life, you're making this very dark and distressing story. What was that experience like to have those sort of two things going on in your life at the same time? God, I mean, I think I think probably, do you have children? I do not, no. Okay, I, because I, I would say that the idea of pregnancy being a sort of idyllic, joyful candy land, I'm afraid, I, though I wish it were the same, it's probably the most primal, disgusting, extraordinary experience you're going to have. That's not to say it's not lovely and wonderful and all that, but it's sort of whatever you're doing, it's pretty tough. And and yeah, when it comes to the film, I sort of feel the same way. Yes, it discusses some really difficult things and there are parts of it that are incredibly difficult. But in general, so much of my job on it was making everyone happy and comfortable so that they felt they could do their best work because we had so little time. We had such a short shoot. You want everyone on set to feel like they can explore something and they're not going to be shot down or, or there isn't enough time to do that one slightly odd take that people wanted so actually the experience of making the film except for a few very difficult moments you know emotional kind of beats in the sea in the in the film it was gen- generally a joy and I really do think the thing that I needed to hear I think before I had a child was every woman who wants a family is worried that it is going to at the very least put a pause on their career you know but often it's much worse than that and I was just so lucky that I worked with so many supportive people. But also I think I just, and I know lots of women, uh, I've worked with women who've been pregnant while they directed me and and lots of women do it. And Greta Gerwig recently did it amazingly for Little Women, which I'm sure she was nominated, was she not? She was nominated for screenplay, not nominated for Best Director for that film. She was nominated for Best Director for Lady Bird. So, but yeah, so I just think it's just like, it's fine. As long as people you work with are decent and lovely and kind, which they were for me, it's just doable. You just do it and it's totally fine. And women do much harder things than direct films. I mean, directing a film is one of the most joyful jobs in the world. It's hard and it's grueling, but it's also, you literally have a chair with your name on it that you can sit on. So it was fine. It was amazing. I loved it. And now I can't get this idea out of my head. The movie as a a glittering Trojan unicorn. I just love this as a concept. And it's funny because I wanted to ask you the premise of the movie. Like when someone recently asked me, what is the movie about? And when you try to describe it to someone, you say, oh, it's about this woman that she sort of convinced she gets these men to take her home. And then she sort of tricks them. And that's the story you describe to people. But then it sort of obviously takes some turns from there As a piece of storytelling, tell me a bit more about that idea of sort of the Trojan unicorn, that you were going to bring people in with maybe one idea of what the movie is, but then it would become this something else. I think if you're going to make a movie that feels very both kind of universal and and personal, that is about a kind of theme like this, there are so many ways to discuss things. You can do a lecture, you can write a book, you can write an article. There are so many ways of discussing these sorts of things and they've been done so beautifully. But the thing about making a film is you have an opportunity to talk 
to people who might not actively read those articles or you know have been discussing these things so it was really important to me that the film not only stood on its own two feet as a movie that it was a it was well crafted and well made and that it was you know something people would enjoy whatever the context was that at least the film itself would be enjoyable but you know that it was also something that didn't just speak to those of us who have thought very very deeply about these things and are kind of reasonably well versed in all of the various kind of different arguments I wanted to make something that you could watch on a date or you you would watch with your dad that everyone wants to watch and then if afterwards they think about it and want to talk about it and argue about it then that's great but it had to be a film before anything else for it to be effective I think you know it, it sounds a bit like a trick <laughs> and I wasn't trying to trick anyone but I think in the same way that I I think Get Out is one of my favourite films in the world. I just think it's just the best film, the most enjoyable film, funny and scary and all the things that it is. And it just so happens that it's an extraordinarily deft and beautiful bit of satire too. I just am such a huge fan and such an admirer of Jordan Peele's because everyone will love that film. And that's why it's so brilliant. And I think that's the way that if you can have a message in your film, that's the dream way of doing it. I mean, what he did was a masterclass, but I hope that Promising Young Woman is able to do something similar, maybe, hopefully. And now the ending of the film is something that I think no one who sees the movie fails to have a strong reaction to one way or the other. And in particular, the sort of two beats of the finale, maybe one way to put it as a question is just, does Cassie get her revenge? <sighs> Well, I don't know. It depends how much faith you have in the system, I guess. It depends. It certainly is a Pyrrhic victory if she has one at all. You know, it's an interesting thing with the ending because you will find that some people think it didn't go far enough. It wasn't bleak enough. It wasn't terrible enough. Some people think it wasn't cathartic enough or kind enough or it relies on the kind of current, you know, incredibly flawed system of lawmaking and governing. That, But I think actually the truth of it is, is that it, I just had to think always, what what would I do? What would happen? What would I do? And the first beat of that is that if I was ever, you know, if I was as experienced and diligent as Cassie, there's no way I would go to that place without a contingency plan because there's a reason that women don't bring weapons into rooms with men. There's just no world where you win. So in spite of her best efforts, in spite of her best laid plans, it was important that she she knew what the risk was and it was one she was willing to take, but that she was also, as she always is throughout the film, clever enough to anticipate every possible outcome and to make sure that that if something did go wrong, that at least it would be discovered. And, and you know, and I think the truth of it is, is that who knows what happens after the film ends. The things that sort of handsome young men get away with in spite of all evidence, is very, unfortunately, it's still extraordinary. So, but at least I think from Cassie's point of view, it is the thing I think she always wanted was that it was irrefutable that the thing happened. And it was irrefutably cruel and unkind. And so at least at the end, that's impossible to deny. So I suppose that would have been a victory of some kind. But yeah, no, it's... It's not the ideal victory, but I don't know what the ideal victory could be that was also honest about the current situation. 
It's interesting to hear you talk about it like that because one of the main things I, I've read in some of the criticism around the movie is exactly the point you just discussed. It seems almost unfair to her that she has to put her faith into the system, that the, she arranges for the men to be arrested even after she's been killed by them, and yet that trusts the system. And you acknowledge the fact that that, like, that is n- not meant to be a sort of like master stroke of, of victory. No, and I don't think I don't think anyone, honestly, who has seen you know this film and who I don't think anyone who has read any article about how or, or known anyone who's ever had to go up, up against the system. I mean, I mean, Cassie, this case went to court, or it was thrown out before it went to court. But so there was a case. I mean, Cassie and Nina have already gone up; they've already seen that system at work, and they've been betrayed by it at every stage. So I don't think Cassie has. I don't think she has an enormous amount of faith in it, but there's a certain amount of evidence that, as I say, is kind of difficult for people not to be tarnished by it. The truth of it is whatever happens afterwards, whatever nefarious lawyer Al is able to get for himself and Joe is able to get, whatever story they're able to weave, that video is what happened. And that is the thing that she she just needed people to admit. I'm, I'm in no way saying that the way to fix this is the route that, this film takes and by any means, but what else is there? You know, Jordan is the lawyer she sends it to because he's had a similar crisis to her and he senses the injustice. And so you feel that he has an opportunity there to redeem himself. So perhaps he'll be able to. Alison, I'm so sorry, Madison, played by Alison Brie, sees a video and immediately sees it for what it is, having reevaluated, which is that it's a, a hideous assault that they laughed at in the past. So I think there is a sense that now people's response to the incident is different. And I really do think that's all Cassie wanted was people to admit that. So whatever happens at the end, you know, who knows that she just wanted people to see, just wanted people to see. And that I I think they will see it. But you know what the outcome is, who, who knows? It was just recently announced that you're going to be writing the screenplay for uh, the comic book Zatanna. And I have to ask, it sort of reignited a lot of conversation around the fact that what Hollywood has to offer when an exciting new voice comes onto the screen and you make Promising Young Woman, it's gotten all this attention, and now you're adapting a a comic book. I'm not trying to get you to sort of like bag on your new job, but like I'm curious if you feel like there are limited opportunities, that's all the world has to allow you? Or like, how does it feel to you to be doing that as your sort of next step? Well, that also, that relies on the assumption that that was a job I was offered after Promising Woman came out. But I've been working on it now with Bad Robot, I think for a year. Hmm. I would say that just like in terms of the chronology of it, it's certainly not the case that that's something that, yeah, that that's a kind of common trajectory necessarily. But also, I love comic book movies. I love uh, sci-fi. I think actually what is very rare is for women to have the opportunity to make big budget, you know, sci-fi or magical or genre films still. And so any opportunity to do that's really exciting. But I'm very picky about what I do, really. And Zatanna, I wanted to do because I think J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot are incredibly brilliant. And I think she as a character is really intriguing. And she has all of the things, you know, before Promising a Woman, and even Killing Eve, I wrote horror stories. I mean, the three books that I've published are are very, very kind of genre, first two at least, very, very genre, horror, magical books. So it's definitely a world that I've been like 
working in, I guess, for a long time. But, you know, I think it's different to taking on a very big piece of IP, I suppose, is what people call it now, that everyone is very familiar with. I think the wonderful thing about Satan is she's an incredibly cool, important character, but she's not somebody that I think a, a huge number of people are familiar with, which just makes it exciting. But no, I, I think it's getting these opportunities is, and it's not to say that you're not getting the other ones. I mean, the other thing I'm working on is my next film that I've written. But to be able to do those two things at once is a pleasure because I like films. I like big films, I like popcorn movies. And so having the opportunity to do both is a real joy. And then, Emerald, just as my last question, you know, over the past year now, as everyone's been sort of mostly locked in their homes, a lot of people have been watching a lot of things. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you if you've kind of watched anything recently that really spoke to you or that you'd want to recommend to other people? Oh, God. I mean, what is so embarrassing is that almost everything that I've watched is a reality TV series called 90 Day Fiancé and all of its various incarnations and also Married at First Sight Australia, which is 40 hours worth of series. So that's not very useful to steer people. But at the moment, I've just been watching all of the movies. I mean, I'm mostly caught up, but there are so many amazing movies this year and obviously you know, voting and things, you watch everything. And the thing that I really can't get out of my head and I thought was just extraordinary was Rocks on Netflix. Have you seen that yet? It's... Mm -hmm. The Sarah Gavron film? Yes. It's just so amazing. So beautifully done. It's just so incredible about friendship, but it's also unbelievably distressing. It's just a masterpiece. And that would be something that I would recommend just for and the performances. I think all of the actors in it are, it's their first thing. They're all really young girls, you know, 15 year old and, and, and then a young boy who must be sort of 10. And they're just, it's just unlike anything I've seen before in terms of performances. It's just, it's just wonderful. So that would be my big recommendation. If you don't mind me asking you, a lot of people in talking about Promising Young Women frequently talk about Michaela Cole's series, I May Destroy You. Have you seen that? Of course, I think it's a masterpiece. I've been a huge fan of her since Chewing Gum. And yeah, and also just as a person, she's so incredible and inspiring. And yeah, the show is just, I mean, I remember me and my sister watching the first episode in your heart is in your mouth. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, she's brilliant. But do you see connections between that and Promising Young Woman? I mean, certainly, like, thematically, we're talking about very similar things. But I think when it comes to women's stories, we have a kind of um, an inclination to sort of put them together or or sort of often against each other, I think, sometimes too. But the truth of it is, is that there's so many nuances to these things. There's so many different experiences. There's so many different ways of looking at it all. You know, it's very rare that I think you find maybe male filmmakers or or showrunners are asked to compare their murder show with another murder show that a guy did. You know, whatever it is I'm trying to think of, you know, or their thriller. I think the thing is, is that you find that, yeah, that, that, that kind of women become compared. But I just think she's a complete genius. And I think that show is perfect, really. And it's just wonderful that we're now living in a world where we're allowed to talk about this stuff, because I think for a long time, People haven't been able to. And then as a storyteller, what draws you to reality television shows? I want I don't want to dismiss uh, 90 Day Fiance. Uh, everything. I mean, everything. I love it so much. I think I think partly because I've been working so hard this year. I've been 
writing a lot and working on lots of things, which is a joy. But also because I've been watching, of course, and of course I've watched The Queen's Gambit and all of the beautiful, amazing and the serpent and all of that stuff. And, you know, all the brilliant stuff that has come out this year. But I think for me, what I love about reality television is how we all think that our interior lives are very hidden that we're very subtle, that that our thoughts are very well masked. And I think what I love about reality TV is it proves it's just not the case. We're all living, all of our desires and our jealousies and our anger is so plain, you know, it's so plain to see. And I find that that's really kind of both kind of moving and compelling when it comes to these shows, because actually it's so much of when you're making a film or a television series is about subtext and subtlety but I think what's interesting is in real life we are not very subtle creatures no matter how much we want to be and so that is kind of thrilling when you've been when you've been spending all day trying to kind of bury things and make them as make them as small and as sort of deftly hidden as possible and then you watch things and you remember oh god actually we're all just kidding ourselves (laughs) And to just wrap up, you know, it's funny, across the life of Promising Young Woman, this is actually now the fifth time that I've been talking to you. And for me, at least, every one of those conversations has been really distinct and, like, engaging. I don't think I've asked you the same question twice yet. And I think that says something about the movie, and it also says something about you. So, Emerald Fennell, I thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for talking to me so many times. You must be as sick of the sound of my voice as I am. Far from it. (laughs) That was great, Mark. However, I do wish you had sneaked in a question to Emerald about her time playing Patsy on Call the Midwife. But maybe you didn't see it. Yeah, you know, I have not seen Call the Midwife, but I know that that was really one of her earliest screen roles and was one of the things that sort of really, like, got her a lot of attention uh, earlier in her career. Well, what struck you about that conversation as somebody that has interviewed her five times? What what did you pick up on this time around? First of all, it's interesting how she, I think, has been paying attention to the conversation around the movie and that, not to say that she's changed, but I think that she, you know, you can tell from her responses that she knows what people are saying about the movie and has been, you know, adjusting some of what and reconsidering some of what she says about the movie based on some of the writing and conversation around the movie. Mm -hmm. I did like, too, what she was saying about how the film sort of weaponizes femininity and the deeper truth in that, because, like, nothing concerns people more than how a woman presents herself. So the way Cassie dresses and the color of her nails, like you don't see her coming because you don't take her seriously. Like I loved hearing Emerald's thoughts on all that. Well, Emerald, you know, mentioned she's watching 90 Day Fiance and Married at First Sight Australia. And I know for sure that is not what you have been watching this week. But tell me what has been on your screen, Mark. Well, you know, it is the last, you know, sort of moments before the Oscars, you know, really celebrating the the best of what Hollywood has to offer. So I I made sure this week I caught up with Godzilla vs. Kong. I have to say, I really enjoyed it. You know, the filmmaker on that, Adam Wingard, is someone that I have followed his career for a long time. He sort of comes from this very, like, sort of indie cult horror background. It's kind of been really exciting to see him grow and be able to take on these sort of, like, really big-budget studio movies like a Godzilla vs. Kong and still bring this really sort of subversive 
you know, sensibility and humor to it. And also the movie has this sort of amazing cast. It's Brian Tyree Henry, Rebecca Hall, Kyle Chandler, Julian Dennison, who people might know from Taika Waititi's film Hunt for the Wilder People. It's a fun and unusual cast of people thrown together. And then the like monsters fighting each other is surprisingly well done. Although it does, when you're watching the movie, you really are like wishing you were seeing it in like a big, big theater, which I, of course, of our reopening, the movie's done pretty well in theaters. So wait, did have you watched Godzilla vs. Kong? No, but my nephews, who are both six, have talked about the epic fight scene. So I feel like I need to, and I'm kind of like the uncool aunt for not knowing what they're talking about. I've been in sort of prep mode for Emmys because we're going to be transitioning to Emmys talk. And I've been sort of rewatching some shows and watching others for the first time as we sort of gear up for roundtables and switching the podcast over to uh, Emmy contenders. So I've been doing a lot of rewatching of stuff that I've seen. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I can add some new sort of TV shows and films to my plate. Well, you know, it's funny when I was talking to Emerald Fennell and she mentioned 90 Day Fiance and Married at First Sight Australia, I, of course, thought of you right away. And so she tried to like sort of shuffle on from that to sort of talk about some other things that she'd been watching. But I made sure to get her to come back. I wanted to hear her in particular because of her, you know, sort of counter take on a lot of things. I wanted to hear like why she likes reality TV. I want to be sure to sort of stand up for those shows on your behalf, Yvonne. Thank you. I won't feel like it's a true victory until you finally settle in with one for a night. (laughs) And I'll let you choose which one. It could be 90 Day Fiance. It could be Real Housewives. I just need one. Well, you know, Steven Soderbergh, producer of the Oscars, avowed fan of Below Deck. See? Mark, you're missing out. I'm just saying. Get to it. And now, Yvonne, next week, you are going to be back in the interview chair. Uh, Who are you going to be talking to? Well, we have Cynthia Erivo, who plays Aretha Franklin in the third season of Genius. Uh, That's the National Geographic series. And it's about the Queen of Souls' life and work. And I don't know if you saw it, but in the series, Cynthia didn't get to perform one of Aretha's most popular songs, which is Respect. But she told me that didn't bother her. Because I think there's a really wonderful thing about being able to introduce people to other songs that she did. Being able to do something like, um, don't play that song for me. Not a rings like memories. I didn't know that she had done that song. And introducing people to, to Border Song, which originally is an Elton John song. Like, finding those gems that we know but don't realize that we know. And she was a part of bringing that to us. Well, I can't wait to hear that that conversation with Cynthia. Yeah, it's coming next week. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson, and our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Mike for making our theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and The Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.